we're back for another episode of Gorilla Brain. And with us today is David Papose. And we are here to talk about Going to the Chapel, a new comic that he will be putting out as of September 4th. Say hi, Dave. Thanks. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's no problem, man. I was, I've was i been looking forward to this for weeks now. I know we had it planned and it got canceled and now we're here and we're doing it now. So very, very excited yeah. talking to you. Me as, me as well. This is, look, I, going to the chapel, it's been a labor of love for a long time. And uh, I'm really excited for this book to see the light of day. Um, and uh, it's it's not like anything else on the direct market. I'll tell you that much. And uh, so I'm very excited uh, for, for readers to, to – to, to learn why love is the ultimate hostage situation. Uh, I wouldn't doubt that one bit. I'm a married man, and I know exactly <laughs> how that goes. <laughs> and uh, what, and I read the uh, the sample pages that you had sent me, and I was just yeah. blown away because I'm like, wow, okay, so you know, we're at a wedding, and you got Elvis's mm-hmm. <laughs> robbing the wedding, and I'm just like, that strikes a chord because I was married by Elvis Presley. Really? Yes, sir. Yeah, no. that's, you know, it's funny that you say that because, um, you know, I thought a lot about, I, I thought a lot about the, uh, the, the Vegas quickie weddings, especially, um, I'm a big fan of, I, I, I'm a big fan of point break, uh, the mm-hmm. dead president. And I really wanted to do something like that with our gang of bank robbers and go into the chapel. And I was thinking, you know, what kind of imagery works well with a wedding? And as soon as I zeroed in on Elvis, I was like, oh yeah, that's what we're doing. Um, and so, you know, we've got old Elvis, we've got, uh, or we got young Elvis, uh, uh, fat Elvis, uh, African-American Elvis and zombie yeah. Elvis. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. King Vegas, uh, Motown and Romero are their names. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they are, they are, they, 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 uh, they're a gang of bank robbers that thinks it would be much easier to rob rich people's weddings than it would be to rob banks. And the problem is they've picked the world's worst wedding to try this out on. Um, uh, we have our bride, Emily Anderson. Uh, she comes from a very wealthy family, but she's dealing with a terminal case of cold feet. And uh, seeing how uh, this, this blushing bride and these bona fide bank robbers collide, um, it's going to turn what should have been a simple smash and grab into a full-blown hostage situation. Yeah, you said that you picked that you had a point break reference in there i was picking up more on three thousand miles to graceland yeah that's another that's another great movie uh you know i was thinking three thousand miles to graceland uh you know we're uh, a lot of tarantino um old school tarantino uh you know has very much sort of influenced my particular voice uh you know dating back to my first book spencer and Locke, and the new sequel spencer and Locke 2 and this is kind of our rom-com twist on 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 sort of the, the the tarantino vibe uh, it's not quite as bloody or violent as, uh, you know, say a true romance or, or a uh, Reservoir Dogs or a Kill Bill, but it's still kind of got that same sort of uh, sense of irreverence and that kind of uh, that, that sense of pacing and the rhythm between action and comedy that I think uh, Tarantino, uh, when he's at his best, he does it better than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of the, the sensibilities we wanted to bring to Chapel. I feel like rom-coms get a bad rap, not just in the direct market, 
But I think in pop culture as a whole, I, I can't tell you how many people, if you tell them, hey, do you like rom-coms? Guys will kind of, you know, their noses will twist up and they'll say, no, I don't, I'm, I'm a guy. I don't watch rom-coms. And there are a lot of women out there who they don't want to be seen as, as shallow or basic or stupid. And so they'll say, oh, I don't, I don't watch rom-coms. Those are silly. And I think there's a, there's a bad rap. There's a preconception. People think, you know, like um, they think of the Matthew McConaughey movie, Failure to Launch. That's what they usually think of when they think of rom-coms. And for me, what I think about, I think about things like 500 Days of Summer. I think of About Time. I think about Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind. Um, you know, I think about those movies where romance is sort of the, the thing that drives the movie, but it does, it's not the end-all be-all. Um, I think romance is just as flexible of a genre as sci-fi, as crime, as superheroes. And mm-hmm. so uh, going to the chapel in a lot of ways was a statement. I wanted to show the direct market that, you know, I, I wanted to write a rom-com that I thought everybody would enjoy. And uh, I feel like sort of by taking this action comedy route um, and the crime angle, I think um, there's going to be something for everybody in this book. Right. I mean, you know, you're stealing $250 million, uh, $250 million necklace. I mean, you know, that's quite, yep. that's quite a score. <laughs> yeah. Well, and, you know, the best part is, is uh, you know, this heist has layers. Um, you know, I, I uh, the thing that, that I love most about going to the chapel is it's a book about communication and lack thereof. Um, and so, you know, Emily, our bride, she's got cold feet, and yet she's struggling to tell her, her well-meaning fiancé, Jesse, that she's kind of having second thoughts about walking down the aisle. Uh, Tom, the leader of the Bad Elvis gang, he's got an ulterior motive to his heist, and that's going to sort of uh, – these two directives and these two people not willing to tell their, 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 their closest friends and family what they're really thinking um, – that's going to kind of mess up this heist in a, in a major way. Um, and, and yeah, the, our, our, our $250 million necklace, uh, we call it the heart of Dresden, which uh, kind of makes me laugh because I, I, I thought of the Dresden bombings when I, uh, when I came up with it. Um, that's sort of, that's our MacGuffin, but we're going to quickly figure out that the real stakes to this is, uh, you know, not just sort of the, the police outside and not just the armed criminals inside the chapel, but it's about a, a group of people just figuring out where their future is really going to lie and where their allegiances really, really are. So that's sort of, you know, uh, you know, love, love is the ultimate score here. And, uh, you know, but the $250 million necklace, that, that's not a bad consolation prize. Yeah, I mean, you can buy a whole lot of love with 250 mil. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you could, you could, you could get married and divorce several times with that. Very much so. You could find a million different Emilys. Trust me, they're out there. <laughs> and I think there's an app for it now. So yeah. <laughs> you know, we'll, we'll we'll pick. You know, if we ever get a sequel, we'll we'll, we'll maybe we'll explore it. Yeah, I really hope there is a sequel. I really like what I read so far. Uh, I, I wanted to talk. Uh, about this Kramer's colors that she used in this one, they're so bright and vibrant. And I was loving yeah. it. Uh, a lot yeah. of a lot of comics now are dark toned and things like that. Mm-hmm. But yours, which is bright, like you know, almost like a, a Grand Theft Auto cover. You know what I mean? It's yeah. Of- well, thank you for saying that first first and foremost. Since I, I actually my 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 next book that I'm working on is called Grand Theft Astro, and ah. it's uh, got that same sort of like kind of bright color scheme to it. Um, 
but I, I appreciate you saying that because um, I've always been a big believer in colorists are sort of the things that make or break books to me. Um, I, I got my start as an intern at DC Comics. Uh, this is uh, during uh, this is 2008. So this was during Batman R.I.P. It was during Final Crisis. It was during uh, Green Lantern Secret Origins. Okay. And um, the thing they really drilled into me was how important colorists are. A good colorist can elevate any artist, but a bad colorist will tank even the most A-list of artists. It's really like, you know, you don't have, unless you're the walking dead, you don't have like a full book unless you've got the, 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 the colors, the colors just add so much energy to it and they really help draw the eye. And when done right, uh, you know, colors can even kind of demonstrate movement on what's otherwise a static page. Mm-hmm. So I, as you can tell, I think a lot about colors and um, I, I, uh, I, I probably give my colors more notes than I even do uh, my, my, my line artists. And Liz Kramer is our colorist on, on Chapel and she's going to be the next superstar in the making. Um, this is her direct market debut as is our series, series artist, Gavin Guidry. And mm-hmm. um I, that's, it's probably my favorite part about working in indie comics is you find people who they've never, they've, they've never had a book before, or they've been working in web comics like, like Liz has. And, uh, so sort of being able to show them off to a wider market, um, it really, I love it. I think it's, it's, it's really a a heartening thing for me. Liz is just, she's going to be the next Laura Martin. She brings such a level of texture to her pages that I think mm-hmm. is really kind of unheard of in the direct market. But like you said, she's also experiments with these really bold eye-catching palettes. Uh, we, we talked a lot about uh, Matt Wilson's work on Black Widow. Um, if you remember that first issue where Natasha just jumps out of the helicarrier and you see this gorgeous sunset as she's kind of like flying free fall in the air. Mm-hmm. Uh, we talked a lot about that. We talked a lot about Patricia Martine, um, who's the colorist on Secret Weapons over at Valiant, and the way that she uses she 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 shifts her palette from issue to issue, but she does it in this very kind of counterintuitive way, where she's got like kind of a hot pink as sort of her anchor accent color, or the next issue she'll do like a yellow or you know or 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 a teal, and um, so Liz and I talked a lot about that where we, you know, Gavin and I had already established kind of this Western motif in the book. Uh, we talked about things like uh, Breaking Bad, Baby Driver, Hell or High Water. Um, and Liz really took that ball and ran with it. So she has this kind of cool desert uh, palette for the, for the series. But then she throws in these pinks and purples to kind of go in with the wedding theme. And it doesn't look like anything else in the stands. I, I, I really think that Liz is... Um, She's our secret weapon. I mean, Gavin is 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 a is a force to be reckoned with in his own right. He's he's kind of like this love child between J.B. McKelvey and Doc Shanner. Um, <laughs> but Liz kind of takes his already incredible line work, and she just really brings it to the next level. Um, they they're they're such a dream team to work with, and I I always say that's the secret to my success as a comics writer is mm-hmm. I always try to team up with people who make me look good no matter what I write, <laughs> um, and. Uh, I, I, you know, I think Gavin and Liz and our, our color, our, our letterer, uh, Ariana Mayer, I think, uh, you know, they, they're the dream team. And so um, it takes a lot of the pressure off me because I know that like, oh, they're, they're the superstars here. And so anything I can do in my scripts to kind of sort of play them up to the hilt 
that's what I'm going to do because they're just they're, they, pound for pound. I think they're 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 one of the strongest teams in indie comics right now. Yeah, you had talked a little bit about uh, palette shifting and stuff like that. Yeah, but you can but you can tell that Liz is trying to set a mood here. Like if you go if yeah. you go in with Emily, right? Mm-hmm. It, it's it's really bright colors in the chapel, mm-hmm. and and then you go back to to the bank robbers to Tom and yep. the bank robbers, and it's completely yep. different. It's like it's like red, it's like yellow, you know. It's like you know this is the fire storm. It's a darker color shift. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It really absolutely. Sets the yeah. Uh, she and you know Liz and Liz is so deliberate about these things. And what's great is you know I talked a, a lot earlier about how I I tend to have a lot of conversations with my colorists, uh, you know, because like you said, they set the moon the mood and the tone of, right. of your stories. Um, but Liz, it's funny after we kind of established our initial tone in the first uh, you know six pages or so, um, we didn't really have to have a whole lot more conversations after that. You know, she would send me pages, and every so often I'd say, "Hey, can we kind of like tweak this background color here just to kind of break up the page?" But um, you know, nine times out of ten, I, you know, it was really I was pleasantly surprised because. Liz, Liz does not need anyone holding her hand. Um, she right. is just she she really kind of knows exactly what she's doing, um, and she kind of rolls with it. So I I'm very excited. I, I'm already working with her on another book um, uh, because I I was so happy with our uh, you know what she did with Chapel, and um, like I said, uh, like get to know her name because she's 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 gonna blow up uh, very soon. Very cool. Um, I was just kind of curious. Uh, how did you hook yeah. up with Ga- How did you hook up with Gavin? Sure. So, you know, it's it's funny because um, at least for me, my you know my my comics come together a little slower. I tend to you know I don't measure twice and cut once. I measure like ten times. Yeah. And um, so I actually connected with Gavin uh, about two years ago. Um, I saw his work, uh, The Night Driver, on Comicsology. And, um, you know, he was looking for more work and I was really taken with how Gavin is able to shift so seamlessly between this very stylized, stylish action and his very expressive uh, comedic beats. Uh, you know, the, the night driver, it, you know, had a sequence of a guy, you know, uh, beating somebody to death with a tire iron and then, you know, kind of driving through, you know, you know, driving in the night, kind of quietly freaking out. And then have like another page of like some clueless idiot, like flossing his teeth in somebody's office. And I was really, I I love that range. And for me, I, uh, you know, I tend to kind of, I try to write with sort of two very distinct threads in each book that I do. And and the reason why is uh, selfishly, it makes it easier for me to kind of get myself out of a rut. Um, you know, with Spencer and Locke, we did Calvin and Hobbes meet Sin City. And so if things are feeling too bleak or oppressive, then I can switch to a Calvin and Hobbes style flashback that either is, you know, comedic or even more bleak. For Chapel, it's, it's a similar uh, principle where, I, you know, if the action is, you know, if, if the action isn't coming, then maybe it's time to write something funny, um, you know, a, sort of a, a, a quieter, you know, more more human scene. And so Gavin just, you know, is able to switch gears like instantly. Um, he is so talented with, with that sort of thing. Um, you know, his characters are very well established, but they're also very three dimensional and very expressive. Um, he and I talked a lot about, you know, what each character was going to look like. Um, I, I, 
I, I'm friends with uh, some a, uh, animation designers, and so they they told me once years ago the best way to talk about characters with artists is to you know just give them a full on character description. You know things like how old are they? What's their you know uh, gender, race, ethnicity? Um, you know if there was an actor playing them in a in a in a TV show or a movie, who are some of the actors that you would think of? Um, you know, what, uh, what do they wear? What do they, uh, what do they do for a living? Um, it's very, it's, it's almost like being an actor in a way, you know, you really have to kind of get inside each character's head and sort of build up their internal life. Even if it doesn't show up on the page, it's something that, you know, kind of helps influence the, 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 the work both, I think for the writer and for the artist. Um, so Gavin and I, we talked a lot about that. And we actually choreographed each action beat uh, bit by bit, almost like a football play for this series, um, because, you know, Gavin, uh, he actually built a chapel for going to the chapel. He did a fully rendered three-dimensional uh, uh, blueprint on SketchUp. So he went so above and beyond the Call of Duty? He went way above and beyond. And so uh, – and, and that kept me honest because – you know, I, I'm used to sort of, uh, you know, I always try to take location into consideration, but not the particular nuts and bolts of every location. I always sort of try to hand wave that. And with this, I couldn't do that. Um, and that was great. It kind of kept me on the straight and narrow because we're we're juggling 15 characters in this book. Yeah, and, and just so, the first issue, uh, right? And just the first issue. And yeah. uh, once issue one, you know, at, starting in issue one, there are all but two of them are in the same location, the entire book. Um, and so being able to say, Emily is in the bathroom while Jesse is in the preacher's lounge, while Tom is drilling next to the organ, and while the family is sitting out by the pews, um, it's a lot of moving parts, but that's the way you sort of wrangle all those cats, is uh, you, know, uh, you just sort of put down that blueprint and it made the writing of the, of it. I mean, it made the treatment stage very difficult, um, which I knew going in with this concept was going to be challenging. But once we had sort of the, the everything choreographed, the script writing actually went very quickly, uh, which was helpful for me because Gavin is a speed demon. Um, he pencils digitally uh, and inks traditionally, I believe, um, and so he moves like greased lightning with a pen. <laughs> And I, you know, like I've said, I'm not the fastest writer out there. I'm pretty deliberate. And working with Gavin, that really kind of took me out of that. Um, I couldn't really second guess my, my, my work the way I usually do because I needed to keep up with him. And so, uh, you know, I, I, thankfully, I didn't, I didn't leave him hanging with any pages. But uh, it was like for a while I was very worried that I wasn't going to be able to keep up with him. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I mean, every, a lot of people are doing uh, digital sketching nowadays. Uh, the traditional ways are kind of, I guess, with long gone because it's just much easier sure. to do it digitally these days. Um, sure. But I do love original artwork. Like you go to a con and you see the original artwork, and you're just like, God, gotta have it. <laughs> exactly. Well, I and 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 you you nailed it because yeah, it's like artists are now having to choose between. You know, can I hit the, the these increasingly tight deadlines that that publishers are throwing at me? Uh, versus, can I sell this artwork someday? Um, and you know, it, I, I feel like Gavin kind of you know has really hit that sweet spot 
uh, where he's able to still have a physical artifact that he can sell as he chooses, um, but he's able to sort of take out a lot of the grunt work at the beginning. Um, and it also speaks to his style. Um, you know, he's got, a, you know, a, a very kind of, when I said, you know, J.B. McKelvey meets Doc Shanner, he's got a very kind of streamlined style to him. And so it's not, a lot, the, the inks aren't necessarily as involved as somebody like Jorge Santiago Jr., who I work with on Spencer and Locke, where he, he does full traditional pages for everything. And he's got a very involved inking style, so it takes longer to put together. Um, but yeah, it's, it's very interesting, um, you know, working with, with, with Jorge versus working with Gavin versus working with, uh, you know, my artist on Grand Theft Astro, Jordi Perez, who works entirely digital. Um, and it's just each, each process has its own kind of pros and cons to it. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's, it's very interesting to see how these different artists, uh, uh, sort of try accomplishing the same thing, but with different means. Hmm. Now, um, so we have 15 characters in the first issue, right? Yeah. And, and I think that everyone's going to be immediate, at least for me, I'm not going to yeah. say everybody, I'll just say me, but I was really yeah. drawn to Tom. Yeah, Tom, Tom just has a presence about him that I really Thank dig. You. Like I'm digging his vibe. So mm-hmm. my question is, you said that you you uh, get into the heads of your characters. Which one was yeah. easiest to write for you? Oh man, that's a great question. Um, you know, well, I, I I think out of the main leads, um, yeah, I think I, I mean Emily had the, the 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 biggest emotional arc for me, and that you know there was a lot to kind of. Uh, 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 chew on for that but Mm -hmm. Tom you know bad guys have more fun Um, and so yeah Tom is you know Tom is always a blast right every you know anytime he shows up um, you know he's this charming scoundrel um, and kind of like kind of like Bodie and in Point Break Um, you know there's a there's a level of charm to him um, you know that that uh, it's kind of easy to get kind of taken in by this guy and uh, as we'll see you know as the series progresses uh, Emily's dynamic with Tom is going to be really the engine that kind of drives the rest of the series. Um, they're each going to, they each have a lot to learn from one another and sort of seeing how this bride and this bank robber, uh, you know, how they play off one another. Um, it's different than like the John McClane, Hans Gruber, uh, you know, dynamic and diehard. Um, I'd say uh, our Hans Gruber is uh, the fear of commitment, <laughs> uh, but I, I, I feel like um, Tom is, is, is a blast to write. I also really enjoyed writing Jesse, um, who's Emily's kind of clueless fiance, um, because we were able to subvert a, a, a lot uh, uh, with him. I feel like, um, you know, I, I when I talk with Gavin a lot, uh, you know, I said, you know, I kind of want a, a a very nerdy African American guy to play her fiance. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, somebody like um, Sterling K. Brown's character in This Is Us, or uh, Cheedy from The Good Place, and I I wanted to sort of subvert those expectations of oh he's a nerd, you know that must mean he's ineffectual, it must mean he doesn't know what he's doing. No, uh, Jesse steps up in a big way. Um, you know, he's kind of, in a lot of ways, he's he's almost the heart of the book um, because he's this guy who, 
he doesn't really know what's going on with his fiance. And to be honest, he's, he's so excited about getting married that he's probably not picking up the sort of neon signals that, that, that Emily is putting out there. But um, he's an ordinary guy who, you know, he steps up. And so, you know, there, that's the fun part about going to the chapel. In a lot of ways, there is no bad guy. Um, you know, sort of the, our main characters, they're all kind of, they all have something sympathetic about them. Um, and, uh, you know, I guess if there's a bad guy, I guess it would be uh, 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 Sheriff Walter Reagan, who, uh, you know, he's our, he's sort of the guy who's putting the pressure on this hostage situation. And when it won't. Yeah. Oh, well, sorry. Sorry. Uh, when I when I uh, when I had read the issue and I saw the yeah. sheriff, the first yeah. thing that popped in my head was uh, yeah. the dad from The Hills Have Eyes, the old cop. That's just kind of oh, what, yeah, like yeah, the yeah. voice that popped in my head when I read it. I'm like, it's fitting. Yeah, I, I, I was curious if that's where the inspiration came from. So for me, my big my big inspiration was uh, was Jeff Bridges from uh, Hell or High Water. Okay. I, 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 I'm a huge fan of, of, of Jeff Bridges, uh, you know, uh, back to, you know, his days as, you know, Big Lebowski, but um, really Tron. the thing that Tron, his performance in Iron Man, to be honest. Um, oh, yeah. And, oh, yeah. And, and Hell or High Water, in, I, I, in particular, I love because he's he's just a cop who's super blunt and just, you know, he he's very direct. Um, and I, I thought in the case of going to the chapel, that directness, uh, you know, while it's great if you're a cop, it's not great if you're the hostage that's in between the cop and the criminal, um, because he's more than willing to go through you to get to them. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, you know, Walt, uh, he's not a Walt's a, you know, he's very blunt and he's very direct, but he's not a stupid man. Um, he is, a, he's the guy who, even if he's kept at arm's length, and as the hostage situation starts to spiral, there will be circumstances that will keep him from just immediately raiding the chapel. Even when he's at arm's length, he's going to be constantly kind of like poking at those boundaries, and he's going to, he's going to do what he can to put the bad Elvis gang uh, to keep them off balance, even at a distance. And so, um, yeah, Walt's, Walt's kind of the, 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 the dog that chases the car and he just might get it. And boy, Emily better figure out exactly where her allegiances lie and what she wants before Walt figures it all out. Hmm. Well, I guess we'll have to see where it goes as the issues roll by, but um, yeah, I also had another question. Um, yeah, shoot. Jesse is an archetype. Uh, God yeah. bless you, puppy. Dog is <laughs> so, um, so Jesse is an archetype, or archetype, an architect. And yeah. uh, I was just wondering if that was a nod to Gavin for building that that Sistine Chapel that he built for you, the 3D model. Yeah, uh, it was definitely that was definitely part of it. And the thing was, <laughs> is I wanted I wanted each character to have something. To, to the table that kind of affected this particular hostage situation. So, you know, Tom, the, you know, the bank robber, it's obvious, like, you know, he's a bank robber. And so, you know, he, he is well-versed at, you know, dealing with hostages and, and trying to make a quick getaway and, and, and trying to see all the angles that something could go wrong. Unfortunately, this is a far cry from a bank robbery. This is more like if the Bluths from Arrested Development got caught in a hostage situation. <laughs> um, Emily, you know, her angle is, you know, this is her wedding. So she knows every angle of this wedding, uh, you know, from 
from uh, you know uh, uh, the, the the layout of the chapel to the uh, you know the, to the thousand doves that her father has ordered for the wedding, and so she's able to in a lot of ways weaponize uh, all this cool wedding imagery uh, that that sort of we 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 have uh, laced in throughout the the, the series, and so Jesse is the architect. I wanted, you know, he's the guy who's able to use the actual setting of the chapel as leverage. Um, he's a guy who knows how things work. Uh, he knows how things are built. He knows the history of this place. And so, um, you know, I, I, we, we have this in a preview of our second issue, you know, wow, big diehard mood. And so for Jesse, he, he thinks he's the John McClane of this situation. And so he's going to kind of try to leverage uh, the unique structure of this chapel to try to rescue his bride. Uh, he just doesn't realize that maybe the person that this bride needs rescuing from is him. So, uh, but this was also definitely a nod to, uh, you know, the actual construction of this chapel, uh, because I feel like it was something that I had to take into a lot of consideration. And then when Gavin and I started discussing it, we really had to take every single element into consideration because, um, I couldn't just say, oh, and by the way, they're in an extra random room that Gavin hasn't built yet. Um, every single room had to be accounted for. Uh, pretty much by the time I started uh, our probably our second issue, um, because, yeah, we had to have all our ducks in a row, um, because otherwise Gavin couldn't sort of build the chapel himself. Hmm. Well, yeah. So... I thought it, um, when I read it, I thought that I thought it was interesting that you introduced Tom yeah. to Jesse before you introduced, mm -hmm. you know, Emily to Jesse mm -hmm. uh, to um, sorry, to Tom. Yeah. You know, you know, you you had him in the bar, and then he met Jesse, mm -hmm. and then you're like, oh, mm -hmm. he's just some random guy, and then you know, a couple pages, a couple panels later, it's like, boom, here's Tom, and he has a connection yeah. to Emily. So I yep. feel like there's a, there's a lot of strings left to pull in this story. Like I can already feel yeah. the tension, and it's only the first issue. Thank you. Well, you know, it's it's I I kind of uh, something I took a lot of influence from, uh, to be honest, for this series was was a lot of uh, uh, stage plays, a lot of those sort of old timey farces where you know it's it's all based on miscommunication and everybody knows everybody, but you know uh, things start kind of spiraling more and more because somebody just missed somebody as they left or somebody didn't communicate this one thing to somebody else or somebody may have miscommunicated something to somebody else and the game of telephone makes things worse and worse. And so the idea of having Tom and Jesse meet before this hostage situation kind of explodes, um, you know, some of it was just pragmatic. It was just a way of trying to, to introduce as many characters into the mix as possible. Um, I believe I had written... I'd written an earlier draft of that of the first issue script where um, where Tom actually had his own separate scene apart from Jesse, and I felt like each of those scenes felt a little anemic. Uh, they didn't, not, neither of them felt particularly strong. And then when I put them together, I was like, oh, okay, like seeing these two kind of play off each other and us knowing something that Jesse in particular doesn't know. And that Tom himself, you know, is only starting to get an idea of um, it's a fun bit of dramatic irony, I think. And, I, I, you know, personal history is something that's definitely going to play a big part in this book, uh, both in terms of, you know, the characters and their relationships and their histories with one another. But I think, you know, especially the way people look at romance, 
I think, you know, love and romance and marriage, we're, we are the products of our past. And so, you know, uh, I, I think, you know, there are some people who have, you know, married their childhood sweethearts and, you know, they, they, things are going great and strong with them and I'm envious of them. Uh, for me, you know, I, I've, I've dated people and sometimes it's, it's, you know, went well and it sort of ended the way that it needed to end. And sometimes it's been kind of like the Hindenburg and, you know, you kind of <laughs> have to, you, you, you have your own scars that you take from that. And so I think that's something that we really explore a lot with Emily in particular is, you know, she's going to have to face her past before she can decide upon a future, whatever that future might be. And so having, uh, you know, characters that, you know, they sort of, they meet each other and then they sort of reconnect or, you know, uh, characters with history with one another, um, that was something kind of cool. And I thought it really kind of helped uh, grow this book into, into, into a more fully realized and three-dimensional kind of world. Yeah, Jesse feels like the sympathetic hero, you know. Uh, yeah. You know, he, he's kind of the victim in a way. I don't yeah. know how it'll play out, but, you know, it just kind of feels at this point, after issue one, you're like, yeah, he's the victim. He He's, you know, not very bright. You know, he's attacking the guy <laughs> with a shotgun, but... Uh, yeah, you know, Jesse, Jesse, he's a he's he's a good guy who his heart is in the right place and he just happens to be facing in the exact wrong direction. Uh, you know, he's 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 a well-meaning guy who, you know, he's 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 not picking up on the cues. He's he's not he he he's he's not listening necessarily the way that he should, and it, it puts Emily in a weird spot because you know she, uh, I I I the reason why I wanted to have this story told from uh, having a female lead is because I feel like in pop culture, we talk a lot about, Oh, you know, fear of commitment, you know, it's those guys, they don't want to get, uh, you know, tied down. And I feel like women have so much more to lose, (laughs) Um, uh, you know, uh, 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 you know, committing to, 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 to somebody for, for in theory, the span of their, uh, the rest of their life. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, Emily's kind of in this position where suddenly she's like, wait a minute, like there's something nagging at me and I don't know what it is. And on her wedding day uh, of all days. On her wedding day of all days. And, um, you know, it's, I, I think, I think a lot of that came from, um, I, I, you know, I, I thought to myself, you know, I have some exes out there who if I ran into them, I'd probably have a panic attack. Um, you know, it's just some people you have history with and it's, it winds up not being great history and it, it, it does shape you in a way, but it's in a way that it's sort of, you know, it becomes kind of your new kryptonite. And so the idea of Emily having to kind of face some of this, uh, you know, some of these setbacks in her past, that's really important, I think, for this book. And I think, you know, for, for me, it's like, I see Emily as sort of, you know, she is a very flawed character and she's uh, very much like if she was able to sort of speak her mind early, she could have avoided a lot of this hassle. But mm-hmm. at the same time, you know, it's one of those things that um, and that's sort of the, 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 the twist on love is the ultimate hostage as love is the ultimate hostage situation is that, you know, when when you've been with somebody and you feel that investment towards somebody, um, you know, it makes it makes what you know on paper would seem like a straightforward conversation. It's it becomes sort of a minefield. You know, you you don't want to hurt the people you love, but at the same time, you also you know you 
you have your own emotional stuff that you got to navigate. And I think that's kind of the dramatic arc of this book is Emily sort of doing everything but facing her her problem and eventually sort of the world saying you got to face this because there are a bunch of cops outside and they're ready to uh they're ready to swarm you with a SWAT team mm-hmm. so you know you're talking a lot of sense here i got to admit that <laughs> so so i mean you were you were a reporter and then you yeah. were an intern at dc and now you can put yeah. health counselor on that resume as well <laughs> You, you know, I, I, it's it's one of those things. I, you know, I've had a, I, I look at going to the chapel in a lot of ways as sort of my zigzag for my career, um, which is its own kind of love. Uh, you know, I, the way I got into comics is I think I washed out of every other stable job. <laughs> I, uh, I, you know, I, I interned at DC Comics. I interned during a recession where there were no jobs. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I worked as a newspaper reporter. I covered uh, crime and politics uh, in in Western Massachusetts uh, for the Berkshire Eagle, in case anybody's uh, looking out for it. Um, you know, I, I I actually covered news in a lot of different newsrooms all around the country. Uh, you know, uh, through college and then after I graduated, and um, I I missed comics. You know, and and it's sort of that love that kind of kept pulling me back, even though things would kind of keep making me swerve. I, you know, I worked at, at CBS in New York. I worked in their uh, publicity department for, for years. And I still kind of felt that call of, I wanted to do something creative. I wanted to do something creative. Um, and, uh, I actually wound up writing, uh, Spencer and Locke while I was working there. And I, cause I was feeling so restless. And when I sold that, um, I said, okay, maybe, you know, I still don't think comics are going to be the job, but maybe I'll work in television, uh, you know, working on, on the more creative side of things. And I, I moved to LA. I worked for a, a management company, um, uh, for about nine months. It was the uh, worst job I've ever had. <laughs> um, is, uh, you know, I, I, uh, uh, it was sort of like um, entourage on steroids. I, I, you know, I was a hapless assistant to seven people. Not uh, every job for, can be the office, I suppose. Not, yeah, not every. And um, you know, comics kept calling me, and so I feel like in a lot of ways there are a lot of parallels to, to that and going to the chapel, where it's sort of, you know, um, to anybody who sees love as a straight line, I'm I'm envious of you. I, you know, it's it's never been that's never been my experience. Um, I feel like pop culture in general kind of treats love and marriage as a destination rather than a journey. Mm-hmm. And journeys tend to have swerves and they tend to have turns and they tend to have detours and they don't always go the direction that you, you initially thought. And so, uh, you know, that was certainly the case in my career. It's certainly the case in this book. Um, and I think it's certainly Emily's arc as well is that, um, you know, I think everybody sort of thinks, oh, well, you've popped a question, you don't, and now there's no more questions. And I think, you know, I think it's a very human thing. I think to say, till death do you part, um, that's an intimidating phrase. And mm-hmm. if you haven't thought it through all the way, then, you know, it, you know, what are you doing? And so I, I think Emily is sort of looking at the enormity of that question and suddenly saying that it's it's too big. It's it's too big to even think about. And, you know, maybe a hostage situation is exactly what she needs to get her priorities in line. Or maybe it's something that she will sort of go through the situation and realize she's had it wrong all along. 
I won't spoil the ending to my own book, but I think, um, you know, this hostage situation in a lot of ways is is the externalization of this very, you know, kind of internal conflict that Emily is, 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 is roiling with. And that sort of, you have Tom and Jesse as sort of the love interests on either side that she kind of has to navigate. Hmm. You just added so many layers to the story. Like I read, I read the, the first issue and I'm just like, mm-hmm. all right, I get it. Now you're just adding layers onto it. You're making the cake Wait. bigger, buddy. Thank you. Yeah, I, well, you know, the, the, that's like the best wedding cakes. You know, they have to have layers, and so I, I feel like, you know, it's. I try to write my stories with a lot of layers to them. Um, you know, sort of give you that kind of that reread value, um, and like we were talking about before we started recording, my my philosophy is if you're going to do single issues, every issue has to stand on its own two feet. It has to have something good about them, something cool about them. Um, I take kind of like the friends model, um, you know, uh, for, for, for those listening who haven't, you know, watched friends, every episode is, you know, it's, it's the one with the bank robbery or the one with the car chase or the one with the monkey. Um, you know, I mean, granted, you know, Ross and Rachel and them did not do car chases and bank robberies, but you, you kind of get my point that every chapter has its own kind of standalone thing that makes it stand on its own two feet. Um, and so, you know, we did that with Spencer and Locke. I thought it was kind of a really fun way to write, um, you know, and I wanted to do that with Chapel as well. You know, um, you know, if you think sort of uh, our table setting issue is fun, wait till you've got the cops sort of trying to beat the door down outside. Wait till you see what happens when uh, these wedding guests decide that maybe they've had enough of this hostage situation. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of this fun little cocktail. I, I, I describe it as if a if Quentin Tarantino had a baby with Arrested Development and then chose to bring that baby to a wedding. Um, it's just, uh, you know, it's, 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 it's a little something for everybody. Uh, but at the end of the day, if you don't have a heart to it, there's no point. And we always wanted to make sure that every issue kind of had those very human themes, whether it's Emily sort of, you know, her natural feelings of being very conflicted because you know, she's not an idiot. Um, you know, I think she, she knows that Jesse is a good person. Um, and she, she, I think knows that kind of her problem is, is, is internal. Um, you know, but you also have Jesse who's just trying to do the right thing and he's trying to save his bride to be. And you even have Tom who, you know, I think he's going to take an extra level of sympathy to this particular situation that Emily's found herself in. And so, you know, and at the same time, trying to get out of this hostage situation without being in a in a pine box or a prison cell. Um, so, you know, I think there's something very human about these characters. And I, I think, you know, in terms of the supporting cast, I mean, the reason why I wanted to write something at a wedding is we've all been to weddings. And I think we all know kind of what to expect at a wedding. I think weddings in, in general are very hierarchical. Um, you know, you've got the father, the, the father of the bride, you've got the maid of honor, you've got the best man, you've got the flower girl. And so being able to kind of build a cast around that structure, um, it's super fun. And, uh, you know, I think everybody, even if people don't have a good relationship with their families, which I mean, plenty of my readers do not. Um, mm-hmm. And if they've re- read Spencer and Locke, they know those characters certainly don't either. Um, but I think everybody knows what a dysfunctional family looks like. And so being able to kind of take that, um, people have told me after reading the first issue of Chapel, they're like, I know these people. 
And I'm like, yeah, I know these people too. Uh, you know, Grandma Harriet was based specifically on my own grandma. Sneaky, um, so, sneaky. Yeah, uh, Grandma Helen. Uh, so if I get struck by lightning between now and Valentine's Day when the trade drops, you know what happened. Um, I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, have it, it didn't take too much to sort of make these characters into something that everybody can recognize. And I think it's just because, you know, if you've ever been to a wedding, we're only one step removed. Yeah, except my wedding, you know, my best man was my co-host, funny enough. Oh, yeah? And, and my wife's maid of honor was his sister. So, you know, we oh, all flew out, we, yeah, we all flew out to Vegas, and it was really nice. So my mom How and dad. How many showed up? Uh, <laughs> there were only a, there were only a couple of crooks at the clerk in the casino. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they were just there to steal all my money. I didn't rob them, so. <laughs> Well, I, you know, it's funny you say that because uh, this whole book was inspired by my role at a wedding. Um, I, I call myself, I was the world's worst best man. Um, I, my, my, my oldest friend, Jay, um, I've known him, you know, his, his father and my father are, are, are best friends. And so I've known him my entire life. And um, Jay asked me to be his best man. Um, and the problem is he was living in, uh, he was living in Charlotte. And I was living in Los Angeles. So I'm having to plan a bachelor party on the wrong side of the country. And let me tell you, this was like the Hindenburg of bachelor parties. It, everything that could have gone wrong went horribly wrong. I, uh, the Airbnb was trashed. I, I rented an inflatable sumo set uh, for the backyard, not knowing that the backyard was at a 45-degree angle. I, uh, <laughs> some, some, some groomsmen bailed at the last second because they decided they did not want to pay for the bachelor party. Um, and then sort of the, the, the icing on the cake is I got hospitalized for a kidney stone 48 hours before the party was going to start. So I actually missed the whole bachelor party that I planned. So as I was kind of sitting there on painkillers, I, you know, I, I thought, um, that, that's the way to go to the wedding. Yeah. You know, I, I, it was, it was, it was, it was, it was horrible. Everything like, and meanwhile, this poor guy, you know, Jay's calling me and I'm trying to troubleshoot this whole bachelor party on the wrong coast on painkillers with the kidney stone. It was, it was hell. And I thought to myself, you know, it kind of reminded me a little bit of hangover, you know, just sort of this cursed bachelor party that just, you know, everything went wrong. Uh-huh. And then I thought to myself, well, at least it didn't happen during the wedding. And then I thought, but what if it happened during the wedding? Right. And, you know, I, that's how the story came to be. You know, at first I thought, you know, what would happen if, uh, if the father of the bride hired some leg breakers to keep my friend from marrying his only daughter? And then I was like, no, that's not really like the worst that could happen. The worst that could happen is if my friend's fiance suddenly got second thoughts. And I realized like, oh, that's a really dramatic emotional arc underneath all that comedy. And I just couldn't stop thinking about it. And, and mm-hmm. for me, the only stories that I tend to write, it's part of the reason why I'm a little slower than most is that I, I tend to take a little while to chew on it because of a story, you know, I come up with ideas all day, every day, but if I'm not thinking about that idea a week from now or a month from now, um, it's probably not going to go the distance. Like if I can't sort of feel that kind of long-term burning affection for, for a story, 
I can't expect you to. I can't expect right. a reader to. Um, you know, Chapel is is a story that you know I've been brewing, uh, you know, for for a couple of years now, and I feel like having that kind of burning affection for a story it helps with the pitching process because uh, you know I'm I'm sure your listeners know this, but uh, comic writers deal with a lot of rejection, a lot of rejection. I can't tell you how many people I shot Spencer and walked to. I'll, I'll say as a top five publisher, what's referred to it as the best thing he'd never publish, which I will, I will take that. I'll wear that as a badge of honor till I die. <laughs> and it, that happened with Chapel as well. I can't tell you how many sort of progressive forward thinking publishers saw my pitch and they said, we love this pitch and we have no idea how to sell it. Um, and I got to tell you, like, like, that's why I really like working with Action Lab is that they, um, they don't have that sense of pretension. Um, I don't think they get too caught up in their own heads about, oh, you know, what's the dollars and cents in this book? You know, what's the, you know, how does this fit in our overarching brand compared to the other books we publish? Uh, they don't think like that. They they mm-hmm. just think, oh, this, this seems like a cool book. And, uh, you know, maybe it's in part because I've worked with them now on, on, on two books previously, so they, they know I'm, I'm willing to put in the work and, and willing to, you know, sell this book. But um, they unanimously went for Chapel. And, you know, uh, you know, we're talking about love advice, uh, you know, earlier. There's something to be said for, for being with a, a place that chooses you. And I, I really feel that way about Action Lab. Um, you know, they've been they've been great partners to work with, and um, I feel like you know they were just as enthusiastic about this concept as I was, and I think that really kind of helped, um, you know, help help kind of bring this book into being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I can see Colin and there's love. It's a, it's a beast, and, and I can't wait to see how it how it all turns out. And yeah. you know, it's it's very exciting. You know, I get to talk to you know comic writers and creators and artists and stuff like that. And yeah. but to really get into their brain and figure out you know their source behind the comic and, and what the story is all about. And and then like you know I said earlier, you were adding layers to it. It was like a metaphor. Yeah. You know, for mm-hmm. your life, for your career, for your yeah. journey. Yeah. Yeah. You know. I mean. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure that, you know, some readers won't pick up on that, but it's kind of, you know, it's for you and you can tell that yeah. it's for you. And that's, that's just the best way to write it. Well, it, it, you know, it's I, I'm so glad to be because I, I can tell that you're you're passionate about this stuff and you really care about the process. And mm-hmm. um, to be honest, that's kind of how I, I, I did exactly. I mean, I so when I I didn't mention this, but when I when I left D.C., um, you know, I was I still wanted to do something in the industry. And I, I really lucked out because I met Janelle Aslan, who was an assistant editor on the Batman books, and she had just she had gotten her start at Newsarama, mm-hmm. and so I wound up writing reviews at Newsarama for about a decade, and I actually wound up being the reviews editor over there. And I, the, but the thing that you know, I, I read books twenty four seven, and I kind of analyzed them, and I figured out what I liked and what I didn't, and how to articulate that. But I never really got the idea of maybe I could write until I did exactly what you're doing, which is I, I did a, a, a column based on artistic process. And I would just interview creators just to be like, hey, how'd you get your start? How'd you do what you did? 
And I remember distinctly talking with Greg Pak. And Greg really, I got to meet him at the Ringo Awards last year. I've, I've met him a few times, but I got to see him again. And, yeah, Greg, um, Greg, the I've met Greg. Greg, uh, yeah, so. he, he's a sweetheart. And he told me something that I'll never forget is that he said when he started writing, he sucked. And that he just gave himself permission to suck. And that he just wrote through it until he got better. Mm-hmm. And I've, I mean, I've, I've picked up a lot of tips and tricks from different writers over the years, but nothing more important than that. And so I, um, I remember distinctly, I wrote a short script every day for 90 days. And most of them were terrible. Um, a ton of them. I remember some, it was during when uh, the Charlie Sheen debacle was going on with two and a oh, half women. men. So, so yeah, so he talked about like uh, Rockstar learning from it. Um, so, you know, if you write something and you finish it, it's, it's okay if it's bad, as long as you learn from it and you bring that to the next thing. And that's what happened with me is every time that I would write a script, I'd get a little bit better because I would know, oh, well, Scott Snyder would have written this in a different way, or Jeff Johns would have written this in a different way, or mm-hmm. Brian K. Vaughn would have done it like this. And so you're sort of able to kind of tri- triangulate yourself a little bit. You're, you're seeing where you're at right now and you're seeing where you used to be and you're seeing where you want to be. And it kind of helps you kind of triangulate. And I feel like talking to creators and reading interviews with creators and, and, you know, uh, any aspiring writers listening to this podcast or you guys are doing exactly the right thing. Uh, listening to creators and their process, I think is um, it made me not just a better writer, but I think it made me a better reader. And at the end of the day, I'm sure you feel this way as well. You know, mm-hmm. I love comics. I grew up with comics. And, you know, if I could just go on a desert island somewhere with, you know, nothing but excellent comics all day, I, you, you wouldn't be able to find me again. Um, <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I think being able to engage with the art form, uh, it's certainly what kind of inspired me to start writing my own comics. And, it, it you know, but I think just being able to kind of read and engage with the medium, um, that's what keeps me coming back. There's so many different ways that you can make a comic that dwarf any other medium in, in, in history. Uh, you know, at least, you know, a TV show, you sort of say, okay, like, you know, everything is still constrained to how the human form looks, at least mm-hmm. as far as a live action TV show or a movie is concerned. Comics, you don't, you don't have to worry about how the human form looks. Um, there's uh, billions of different ways that the human form looks in a comic and, you know, um, and seeing the different ways that artists approach what we consider to be universal subject matter. Um, it's that variation that excites me so much and keeps me coming back. And so, you know, um, there's a real cool artistic spin to it. And that's why I just, I want to thank you for everything that you're doing, uh, because I feel like being able to chat with somebody who clearly understands process and appreciates uh, how different creators approach things in different ways. Um, I think it's really uh, encouraging for me, both as a creator and as a fan. Yeah. Uh, at one point I was like, I could probably write comics. I uh, probably, yeah. and then, you know, I went through and just broke down the components and how to do it. And, you know, between, you know, inking and, and yep. artists and different forms of it and, you know, different types of writing, you know, I mean, you got, like you said, you got your Scott Snyder who writes one way 
Then you have Jeff Johns who writes in a more more of an epic-y fashion, you know, yeah. real quick blurbs, you know. Um, yeah. He's not so much like, you know, Alan Moore that'll write you a damn paragraph. Um, right. So, I mean, everybody writes different. I'm like, well, which way kind of fits me? And then I'm like, you know, I could just be me, you know, and just yeah. do it my way. And then that turned into, you know, a short story, which turned into partial book. I'm not done. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah. So, you know, I kind of found myself by by not comparing myself or trying to be like someone, but sure. building a building a template off of that kind of helps yeah. me become a better writer, you know? It's 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 you know, you everybody builds up their own toolbox. Mm-hmm. And and you know, the the thing that I always I, I always tell people after I talk their ear off about process is I'm like, by the way, you're gonna consider ninety percent of what I say to be nonsense and that's okay. Because it's all about what tools. It's a little, you know, you, you know, the the creator chooses the tools, but the tools kind of choose the creator a little bit too. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it, you know, what works for me definitely won't work for somebody else. They'll, it just won't connect with them. I think that's sort of the key that a lot of people don't think about is that, like, you know, for example, you look at Brian Bendis and the way he does dialogue. Mm-hmm. It's not everybody's cup of tea. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, it's like there are certain people who like, they're like, I love it. It's sort of like David Mamet. It's kind of this back and forth, very bantery, you know, mm-hmm. uh, there's other people who, you know, they say it's kind of decompressed and it, it, you know, all that banter comes at the cost of, uh, of forward storytelling movement. And the people, I remember um, Matt Rosenberg, uh, I read his book, uh, We Can Never Go Home. And I remember telling him, I was like, this reads a lot like Bendis, uh, you know, in a good way. Like, like, you know, it's just a lot of banter going back and forth. And I remember that really made his day when, 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 when he, when, when, when I told him that. And, but at the same time, I could never write like that. Like, right. it's just not a tool that works for me. Like, like I, 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 you know, if I don't believe in it, I can't use it. Um, so yeah, I think so much of it, you know, and that's why like being, uh, well-read both in you know the comic sphere but also film and television as well as just sort of being naturally curious about the world um that's so important to i think being a, a comics creator is because you're able to sort of take little bits and pieces here and there um you know and say oh i really like that thing that that person did i'm going to swipe it um for example, uh, Christopher Nolan. Love Christopher Nolan uh, uh, movies. Memento is kind of one of my favorite movies, and that really went, uh, you know, in a, into a big way in, in Spencer and Locke. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't like his movie The Prestige. I don't really like it. Um, I think, you know, I get where he's going from with it. I think that the twist at the end kind of break it for me. Yeah. Um, but I love the structure of two guys who just hate each other's guts, and they are living their lives desperate to screw each other like just just desperate to just like like make each one's life a living hell mm-hmm. uh i love that structure and um i'm working on uh actually uh, an outline right now of something that if it works that way it's gonna it's gonna be in that similar vein so you find different storytelling tricks that you like and you kind of you, you start to graft them onto um onto your own work i know for chapel for example, um, it's a book without uh, narrative captions. There's no internal monologue anywhere in that book, and uh, that was a conscious choice. Uh, I wanted to see was, if I could do it. Was the uh, was the uh, the singing in the beginning? 
Was that it was that Miller or was that just someone out wrestling? So that was also that was also that was a, that was another choice that I made where I said, okay, how can I do a musical montage in a comic mm-hmm. and actually pull it off? Because you know we all know comics are a silent medium, and so by taking a song that literally everybody knows um, and and sort of laying out the characters visually, no dialogue, just these lyrics. Um, it's a fun way to kind of like establish mood and to kind of, you know, say, okay, like this is a book that is going to be, you know, it's going to rest just as much on style as it is on substance and humor and characterization. Mm-hmm. So, um, but you know, it's one of those things that like, I, I'm sure I saw that in a movie somewhere. I thought that's a cool idea. Like let's, let's swipe that. Um, and, uh, you know, I feel like, you know, even sort of the, 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 the Tarantino style of kind of jumping backwards and forwards in time saying, you know, four hours ago, one hour ago now, you know, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it's sort of, it's, it, you know, everybody finds tricks that they, they find kind of cool. And I think, you know, for me, once I started doing regular writing, it became about like, what are the, what's the storytelling techniques that I'm really envious of that I want to sort of incorporate into my writing. And what are the themes that I think that I can speak about? Um, you know, the, the, uh, and, and, and what's my ultimate directive anytime I make a comic is, can I make you cry or can I make you laugh? Well, and if I can do one, if I can, if I can do one of those two things, I I'm doing pretty well. Um, and I feel like, you know, I feel like chapel, chapel, chapel might make you do both. Mm-hmm. I think that if you can make a connection in some way, shape or form, then you've done your job as a writer. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Otherwise it's just product. And, you know, uh, Lord knows there's, there's enough product on the shelves and I, um, I, I was I was on a panel with Rosenberg actually at Boston Fan Expo uh, last weekend. He said something similar where a lot of comics out there they they know how to tell a first issue, mm-hmm. and then they don't know how to tell anything beyond the first issue. They got their high concept out there, and then they don't know what to do with it. And that, I've read enough. Yeah. Yeah. I just I've read enough comics out there that I hate that. I think it's a waste of somebody's money. I think it's just kind of a, a, a craven cash grab to try to jump on the Hollywood train. Mm-hmm. And look, my, my stuff's been optioned, you know, uh, in, in Hollywood. I, I don't begrudge any creators who can, you know, who, who make the jump to multimedia. My reaction is just earn it, you know? Right. Um, and, and so uh, being able to, you know, uh, treat each issue as something important, and uh, to, 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 to go beyond just the concept and really kind of remind readers, why are we doing this? You know, you, we're doing this for a connection and we're doing this to make you feel something. And if you can't do that in every single issue, um, you're just, you know, you're just churning out product. And I don't know, I think, um, I think life's too short, uh, both as a writer and as a reader. Uh, there's too much good stuff out there to waste your time on product. Yep. I mean, and, and you can especially, you can tell a very good 
story in in a couple of issues. You can do that. Yeah. It doesn't have it doesn't have to be a twelve month arc, you know, that goes the entire year just to tell a great story. I yeah. mean, you, look, you can look at like Batman: The Dark Knight Returns, right? It's yep. four issues and it tells an yep. amazing story, and yep. it's just condensed. It's a condensed mini, and that's fine. Yeah. It, it is possible, but. It seems like they just want to just kind of milk it these days, and it just it doesn't just it's hurt. Hard. It doesn't just hurt their product; it hurts my wallet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, and I think a lot of it is storytelling trends for today. I think uh, you know we talked about sort of the Bendis style of, of of decompression. It's it's sort of it's based on Brian Bendis and Mark Miller and Warren Ellis to a lesser extent. Uh, you know, based on his authority run, and that's sort of. You know, uh, the authority, the ultimates, and Ultimate Spider-Man have set a have set the tone for a generation of comic storytellers. And the thing is, is like, look, there are creators who can pull off any of those toolboxes and make it sing, and they're terrific and they're fantastic. Um, but not every creator can do it. Right. And so, you know, I, I look to, uh, you know, I look at, yeah, that you know, Dark Knight Returns. I mean, Frank Miller in general is a, you know a big influence on me. Sort of the way that he always tries to play around with form um, and pacing, you know, on the page, uh, because you know, space is space is time uh, on a comics page, as, as Scott McCloud would say. Um, I think I think a lot about you know, believe it or not, um, Cameron Stewart, Brendan Fletcher, and Babs Tarr on Batgirl. Um, I think about that a lot. Uh, you know, that was a, that was a series, you know, if you don't remember it, you know, uh, every story was basically a, a, a done in one. Um, mm-hmm. Now, granted, they all fed into sort of a greater meta arc, but, um, you know, all those stories, all those single issues uh, read on their own and they all read terrifically on their own. And granted, there were a lot of pages that had like seven, eight, nine panel pages, but they managed to get the rhythm out in a way that, you know, it didn't feel oppressive to read. Um, and I feel like, you know, that was a, that's been a huge influence on me. Um, I always think about that series. I think a lot about um, uh, Devin Grayson and Roger Robinson on Batman Gotham Knights, which is a series that has been criminally uncollected over at DC. Oh yeah. Very similar, where like they she would do a lot of done in one issues. They had an issue of what what does Batman do on a slow night? And you know, it's Batman. You know, he's He's bugging Nightwing and Oracle, you know, just saying, is there anything going on in the streets? And then he finds out that they, they're actually in the same place hooking up. And they're like, seriously, Bruce, get a life. Go away. <laughs> um, you know, Bruce reads like half his library, but he's a speed reader. So he reads it in like 10 minutes. Yeah. Um, you know, he, he, he calls up Aquaman. He's like, anything on the Justice League channels? And Aquaman's like, no, man, there's nothing going on. And it finally ends with like Bruce just inviting Arthur over for a beer. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's sort of, uh, you're able to tell it's the, the more you can compress the story and the more human you can make it sort of, the more you can focus on these human things. Uh, they, they always say this and it always sounds like nonsense, but as I've become a writer, I've realized it's true is the more specific you make something, the more universal it becomes. And I feel like by sort of focusing in on character over spectacle, you know, and there's a, there's a time and place for spectacle. There's certainly nothing wrong with it, but the spectacle hits so much harder when you have a character that you actually care about in the middle of it all. 
Yeah. And so, uh, you know, I always, I, I always think back to those uh, 90s Marvel ads, and maybe I'm dating myself here, uh, <laughs> putting the character back into comics. I think about that probably yeah. once a day. And, and I feel like uh, as long as you put the character first and you make something like, like you said, there's a connection, everything else will follow. It's it's the emotional connection that 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 if you don't have it you're you're, you're doing something wrong. Yeah, I would, I would say the last story that I read was uh, Jeff Lemire's Old Man Hawkeye. I like mm-hmm. you you felt for Hawkeye, the Old Man Hawkeye, the entire time. You just want him to get his revenge. You know? Yeah. He's the you know those those bastards did him dirty. You know you want him mm-hmm. to get his revenge. And like you know it 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 was really good writing for once. But two, it, it just drew you in and just – it was so relatable, you know, as, as, yeah. as like um, a human condition, I guess I would say. Mm-hmm. And and then it ended after 13 issues, and I'm like, so now what do I do with my life? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I that's You know what? That's And that's that's what we're all shooting for. Uh, I think, you know, there. look, don't get me wrong. There are comics creators out there who are working on books where it's a paycheck. And – I get it. I respect them. You know, like, like not every book I was looking at a tie in book for, for a big two event and I won't name names for it, mm-hmm. but you know, it was a book that was just, okay. It was just solid. It was just competent, I guess. It's not going to reinvent the wheel because it's a tie in book for an event comic. And you know, nobody's looking for those books to reinvent the wheel. They're just looking for variations on a, the theme from the flagship book. Right. And, you know, it's just, you know, if people love this, you know, event book so much and they want to just keep seeing variations of it with different characters, you buy the tie in. Right. Um, and and so there are there are creators who write books like that. And, you know, it's a paycheck and it's a living. And, you know, not every book has to be super highfalutin and and, you know, trying to change the industry forever or trying to win all the awards. I get that. But that's the cool thing about creator owned is that creator owned books don't work that way. Mm-hmm. No, if, if, if you're putting out a creator owned book just to, I don't know, try to drum up some multimedia interest, people can sniff that out pretty quick. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it's not to say that there aren't, you know, certain readers who will pick up anything from any specific publisher, no matter what level of quality it happens. You know, there are certain floors and ceilings that every publisher has, um, but I think, you know, those aren't the people that I'm trying to, those, those aren't people that I could win over, you know, right. um, if somebody says that they are going to buy every book in the dark horse catalog store, a name out there, um, and they don't know anything about action lab, you know, and they would never buy anything from a publisher they've never heard of. They're not somebody I can win over, but, right. um, but I think, you know, most creator owned books, they're, there's something to it. There's some there, people that there, there's some spark that somebody involved cares about it. Um, you know, and that's sort of what keeps me, you know, excited about this industry. I mean, look, if Marvel or DC called me tomorrow and said, Hey, David, do you want to write X, Y, Z, Z list character? Of mm-hmm. course I would tell them in a heartbeat. Yeah, let's do it. Let, let's write that 12 issue space cabbie miniseries. Um, but I, I don't feel bad about not being in the majors because I kind of like building up my skill set and I like telling stories that I feel something about. Um, 
people tell me all the time at shows, they're like, oh, you know your sales pitch really well. And I said, because I believe in it. Right. And I, I, I would have a very hard time trying to sell a book that I don't believe in. And that's why maybe my books take a little longer than some others to come out is that by the time it's said and done, I can sleep at night selling this book. I yep. can sleep at night selling going to the chapel and I won't feel bad about it. And, um, you know, I know there are creators out there who torture themselves after the fact and they say, Oh, this book, you know, like, you know, I wish I had done X, Y, Z, you know, and I think, no, I don't feel that way. I never feel that way. Um, I feel like I've gotten all my stress out in the production phase and once it's done, I know that I did everything I possibly could to make this book work. And I've been really fortunate to work with collaborators who are way more talented than I am, who see it through. And, uh, you know, when you've got that, you know, who needs Spider-Man? I, I got my, I got my own ideas. And, Sony and, does. And Sony does. <laughs> yeah, Sony needs them. Uh, you know, and, but it's like when you've got creator owned and you're telling stories that you love and you've got something that, has a connection to you as a creator and hopefully a connection to readers. Um, it sure beats digging ditches. Let me tell you that. Yeah. But you, you think about it too, is that a lot of the indie, indie, indie creators and the GoFundMes and the indie go mm -hmm. and all that, their book has soul to it. You know, they're, yeah. yeah, like this might not be a paycheck for them. This might actually be a, a debt. You might owe one. Absolutely. Book, you know, yeah. and, but it's your calling card. Exactly. You got to take that I, chance and you got to be yourself. I, I give a lot of creators, especially the ones who do crowdfunding. Um, I give them all the credit in the world. Um, you know, I, I'll, I'll, I'll name drop my buddy, Frank Gogol. Um, you know, I met him uh, a few years ago and it was right when he was doing his Kickstarter for grief. Uh, Ringo nominated grief, I should say. Uh, and um, I was really impressed by the hustle. He put into it and the fact that as a first time creator he was tackling such a big broad theme and you know um for his first book and i feel like you know there are a lot of people out there who will take a story and they'll they'll shop it around and you know publishers will say i don't know who you are or this isn't ready for prime time or we don't think we can sell this mm -hmm. and i think that's kind of my approach is is Oh, if I feel that strongly about a story, I'm going to get it made no matter what. Uh, I will get this thing published out of spite. <laughs> um, I felt that way about Spencer and Locke when we shopped that to every publisher under the sun, and we lucked out. We got Action Lab to pick us up, but I knew those pages looked so good that I I'd take it to Kickstarter if I had to. Mm -hmm. And the same thing with Chapel. Uh, going to the Chapel, I knocked on if, – if, if there was a door, I knocked on it. And I said, well, you know, if nobody picks this thing up, I'm, I'm going to take it to Kickstarter because this is a story that I feel passionate enough about that I'm going to make this thing happen. It's the number one skill that separates creators from aspiring creators is just um, what will you do to get it done? And I'm not talking like anything like, you know, lewd or inappropriate or sort of, you right. know, but it's just, it's just, you know, uh, what would you do, you know, like, like, it, you know, would you get your book made without a publisher? Um, you know, would you self publish it to get it made? If the story burns inside of you enough, the answer is yes. 
And it's not to say that there aren't stories that, you know, maybe could use another polish or maybe there's an ingredient that's missing. And that's sort of the ongoing struggle that I think all creators have to have is they have to interrogate their own work enough to say, is this of professional quality? And, you know, if, if somebody's turning it down, is it, is it me or is it them? And I think there are a lot of indie creators, you know, out there who they love, they love professional level comics and they're not quite able to look at their work in such a way that they're able to see like, Oh, this is the thing that's keeping my work from being professional quality. Sometimes it's the art. Sometimes it's the writing or the concept. Sometimes it's just something as simple as the lettering. Um, you know, being able to take a good, sober, honest look at your work and saying, is this ready for prime time is, is, is hugely important, but there are plenty of great pitches out there that get overlooked and they should, they shouldn't be. Um, a, a buddy of mine, Carlos Gaffoni, um, his new book strayed, uh, just hit stores this week. It's about, uh, a, a, a cat that has astral projecting powers and, and, the cat is being used by sort of an evil futuristic government to try to find a new planet for humanity. That's a weird concept. Okay. That's a weird concept that you're not going to sell in six pages. So what Carlos did is he funded a whole first issue and he shopped that around and people thought that the artwork was so terrific and they thought over that where the story was going to go over the course of 24 pages, I think it was, that it got picked up by Dark Horse and well-deserved, I would say. Um, but that's a story that I'm sure if Carlos hadn't done a full issue on that, it probably people would have said, that's a weird idea. I don't get it. Um, and so there's something to be said for creators knowing their worth and knowing that a rejection does not speak poorly on them or their skills or it doesn't necessarily, I should say, speak poorly of, on them or, or their own skills. There's a whole market and a whole set of variables that you can't account for as a creator. It just doesn't happen. Um, and uh, all you can do is just make sure your work is as professional as it can be and then knock at as many doors as possible. And I know it's tough. Boy, it's tough. Um, you know, there are people who have, you know, uh, you know, juggling three jobs and they have multiple kids and they have they've got sick family. And um, the thing that I want to tell them is that doesn't mean you can't create. It may mean that it's slower going, and that's fine. Nobody, you, you there is no expiration date on becoming a comics creator or any creator or any artist, I should say. Um, the expiration uh, uh, ends when you're dead. And to be honest, it ends a little bit after you're dead. Um, and so, you know, even if you're writing a page a day, even if you're writing two pages a day, uh, you write two pages a day, you've written an issue in a week and a half, and you've written a mini series in a month. Um, it's, it's, it's not impossible. Um, it's just really, really hard. But I can tell you from my experience, uh, making comics is the hardest thing I've ever done. But boy, is it one of the most worthwhile. Wow. And you can add motivational speaker to his checklist <laughs> of jobs that he has or could have. Jeez. Well, you know, if this comics thing doesn't work out, I'll I'll, I'll be sure to go down the list. <laughs> hey, we're always um, looking for uh, extra code on the show. There's always a space for you here. 
but um but no i and and i want to thank you for for chatting with me about chapel and any of your listeners you know if you you know you can pre-order uh issues two and three of going to the chapel at your local comic shop right now i'm sure you've heard this from plenty of other creators but uh pre-ordering books uh makes or breaks uh books at the indie level so uh you know if you or you can order going to the chapel uh issue two we've got three covers for it uh the codes are uh aug for august uh, Aug in 1942 for Sweeney Boo's cover. She's the artist on uh, Marvel Action Captain Marvel. She's terrific. Um, Aug 1914-83 for Bon House's Andy Warhol style cover. And Aug 1914-84 for series artist Gavin Guidry's cover. And then uh, the pre-order codes for issue three actually just dropped uh, yesterday. So you can order it with uh, SEP for September 1913-67 for Emily Pearson's terrific cover. Uh, SEP 1913-68 for Mon House's wedding cake cover. And uh, SEP 1913-69 for uh, Gavin Guidry's uh, Night of the Living Dead inspired cover. So, um, uh, I, I thank you for taking the time and, uh, you know, thank you to anyone listening to this for uh, listening to me ramble. And, uh, you know, uh, for those of you out there listening who want to make comics, um, there's no better time to start than now. And I know it's going to be hard. Just keep doing it. And if you don't keep doing it at the very least pre-order my book. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> shill, shill that book. Shill that book. That's right. <laughs> All right, Dave, I thank you so much for being on the show, man. It's meant a lot to me, and it's been a good time, and I hope we get to do it again, you know, when you're, pitching, your, when you're pitching the Chapel TV show to, you know, the CW, and, you know, you're world famous. I hope you remember the Gorilla Brain. <laughs> uh, I, I, I Absolutely. Volume 2 is Maternity Ward. You heard it here first. All right. <laughs> Look forward to it, man. Thank you so much. Of course, man. Thank you so much for taking the time. All right, man. Thanks. Bye. All right.